Hello and welcome to Timeless Files, a fan podcast for the TV show Timeless. I am your host, Chris Butler. I thought I'd start this week with a quick look at where we stand after the first episode of season two. So the central idea of the season has been set up in the first episode. After the bombing at Mason Industries, Rittenhouse made ten trips into the past with the mothership. And they've placed sleeper agents in the past. But to do what? We don't know yet. Interestingly, the time team seem to have written off those trips. They haven't tried to interfere in those events, those first ten trips by the mothership. Maybe they don't have enough information to try to, even if they wanted to. It's unclear. It's possible that Rittenhouse might have already made changes to the timeline. And if they have, Rufus, Lucy and Wyatt, they might have no idea that history was ever any different. But now, with the lifeboat back in order, they're once again in a position to stop Rittenhouse from achieving whatever they set out to do next. Alright then, let's get on with the next episode. This time I'm talking about Season 2, Episode 2, The Darlington 500. The episode starts at a house in Darlington, South Carolina, September 4th, 1955. The soundtrack music perfectly evokes 1950s suburbia. Inside the house we see trophies around the room, awarded to a Ryan Millison, and photos of cars. Millison is studying a plan of a racetrack. His wife comes in, she's pregnant. She tells him he knows the track like the palm of his hand. She asks him to dance with her, and he does. It's very romantic. The camera zooms in on a photo of the two of them. And the scene shifts to a copy of the same photograph, but now we're in a car with Emma Whitmore and another man. I don't think he's ever named except in the credits, where he's called Goon Mark. So I'm going to call him Goon Mark in this podcast if I need to refer to him, which I think I will do. Emma says she didn't know he was married, obviously referring to Ryan Millison in the photograph. Goon Mark says two caskets instead of one. Emma says three, counting the bun in the oven. So it sounds like they intend to kill Ryan Millison and his wife, and unborn child. Emma sounds slightly regretful in the way she talks about it, but if you're thinking she might hesitate to kill the Millison family, you'd be wrong. She loads ammunition into a handgun and says, drive faster. There's actually a little bit more going on here than is obvious at this point in the story. But it's clearly Emma's intent to make sure that the Millicens are dead by the end of the episode. We cut back to the bunker, the secret site that is currently home to the time team. Rufus is underneath the lifeboat, carrying out repairs again. It's interesting that Agent Christopher hasn't brought in any other engineers to assist. Either she doesn't want to risk anyone else's life after the bombing at Mason Industries, or she's unwilling to trust anyone else at this point. Rufus asks Gia to hand him a T10 Torx, which is a screwdriver, I think. And as she approaches him, she sees a burn wound appear on his arm. After a few seconds, the vision ends and his arm is undamaged again. 
So this is a new vision she's had. There's no white-eyed seizure this time, so no major signs that anything is wrong. Rufus does ask if she's okay, and she says she's fine. She seems to be determined not to discuss what's happening to her. Next we see Lucy reading something on a laptop. Wyatt approaches her and asks what she's reading. It's the Rittenhouse Manifesto that they acquired in the last episode, in 1918. Wyatt says that stuff's crazy. Lucy says it's crazy stuff that her mother believes in. Wyatt tries to gently ask her what happened to her in the six weeks that Rittenhouse had her. Lucy says it's nothing to talk about. He says so, is that why she's staring at the ceiling all night, every night? He's learned this from Gia. Uh, Lucy and Gia are roommates and Gia is worried about her. They all are. She says she's fine, but she's clearly not. And nor is Gia. A klaxon goes off then, signalling that the mothership has jumped. They see it has landed in 1955, South Carolina. Lucy says there's nothing of obvious historical significance there, so they have no idea what to look for if they were to go there. But then Lucy says she has an idea. She knows they'll all hate it, but there is someone who might be able to help them, someone who knows more about Rittenhouse than they do. It's Garcia Flynn. Wyatt more than hates that idea, predictably. But Lucy says Flynn said he would only talk to her so why not go talk to him? Agent Christopher, who put him in jail, says they can't trust a word he says. But no one has a better idea. Lucy doesn't really seem to have any animosity towards Flynn now. She definitely seems to be of the opinion that Rittenhouse is much worse than he is. And maybe to fully understand why that is, we might need to know more about what Rittenhouse has done to her. But we'll have to wait and see if what happened during those six weeks is ever revealed. I'm not sure if it will be. We cut to Flynn in his prison cell. Agent Christopher goes in first, followed by Lucy. Flynn says Lucy has looked better. She definitely has. They've made her look almost dowdy in this scene. Agent Christopher tells Flynn that Rittenhouse were in South Carolina, 1955. Does that mean anything to him? Flynn says maybe they should ask Lucy's mother. Lucy looks at Christopher at this point. She's worked out straight away that Christopher and Flynn have discussed Lucy's mother. Denise has to admit that the subject came up during her interrogations of Flynn. Flynn says if they get him out of there, he'll talk to them. But Christopher says that's not happening. Lucy says she wants to take down Rittenhouse for good. She'll do whatever it takes. Flynn kind of scoffs at her. He says she stopped him doing that over and over. And he says, are you going to kill your own mother? Who secretly groomed you? Programmed you since you were a child? This is an intriguing take on the relationship between Lucy and Carol. Lucy has never seemed hugely damaged to me. Until now, perhaps. Of course, Flynn is largely guessing here. She reminds him they murdered his wife and daughter. If he wants to avenge them, then he can help her, or he can rot knowing their deaths were in vain. She gets up to leave, but 
but he calls after her that there was a South Carolina address on a Rittenhouse agent he killed, an address in Darlington. He gives her the address. He says this one is free, the next one will cost her. Goran Viznich has had very little screen time so far in these first two episodes, but he really makes the most of this scene. I think the writing is fabulous, and he just chews it up for all he's worth. So Wyatt, Rufus and Lucy dress for the 1950s. Wyatt is complaining the clothes aren't very authentic. Mason says they are financially challenged at the moment. He has pretty much lost his fortune since he was largely funded by Rittenhouse. But I would have thought Agent Christopher's funding would stretch to a few period clothes. Maybe not. Denise tells them the address that Flynn has given them is a house belonging to Ryan Millison. Wyatt recognises that name immediately as a famous NASCAR racer. None of the others have heard of him, mainly because they know nothing about NASCAR. Anyone who does know NASCAR history will be scratching their heads because Ryan Millison is not a famous NASCAR racer in the history we know. But there's a reason for that, as we'll discover. The lifeboat prepares to jump away. The camera swoops up to look down on the lifeboat. And when it jumps and the smoke clears, you're left looking at this big Department of Defence design in the floor. It's just a fantastic piece of directing, I think. A real wow moment. We cut to Nicholas Keynes and Carol Preston. We learned in the previous episode that he wrote the Rittenhouse Manifesto, that he envisaged the invention of a time machine and foresaw how that would enable Rittenhouse to achieve, or at least further, its aims. But we've seen almost nothing of him so far and we have little sense of what kind of a man he is. Carol asks him how he's feeling, but he doesn't answer. He's painting. She tells him they've planted sleeper agents in different decades, as per his writings. She sees that he's printed pages from Wikipedia. He says he's printed all of it, but that can't be true. Scribed by your mechanical printmaker, he says. So from the way that he speaks, we can assume that he really is somebody from the First World War time period. Carol says he could have used the tablet she gave him but he says it strains his eyes. He asks Carol if she recognises his painting. She does, it's her mother, Nicholas's daughter. Carol says they've been waiting for his guidance. He doesn't seem hugely interested in engaging with the conversation Carol's trying to have with him. He asks if they've got the Vitrola he asked for. She says they're having trouble tracking down a hundred-year-old record player. He says he wants what he's used to. He gives her a list of songs he says he wants to play on the Vitrola, and he says he wants pickled eggs. So he's eccentric, and Carol seems a bit exasperated with him. She doesn't seem to be getting what she wanted or expected from him. In terms of the success or otherwise of season two as a whole, I think there is a lot riding on whether or not Keynes is a compelling character. He's certainly quirky and strange, if this first scene is anything to go by. Wyatt, Rufus and Lucy are interviewing Mrs Millison, claiming to be reporters. She tells them he's racing today in the Darlington 500. She mentions two other reporters came by, which raises everyone else's suspicions. 
She says the man looked serious and the woman had red hair and a lot of freckles. So that'll be Emma then. The credits are on screen at this point. This episode is written by Jim Barnes. He previously wrote episodes 4 and 12 of season 1 of Timeless. That's Party at Castle Villar and The Murder of Jesse James. And this episode is directed by Olutund Osunsami. It's his only directing for Timeless so far, but he's also directed episodes of shows such as Star Trek Discovery, Bates Motel and Falling Skies. So we go to the Darlington 500 racetrack. Wyatt really loves the cars. Rufus is surprised why it could be so nerdy about something. Someone deliberately bumps into Rufus. He says this is not exactly a fine place for black folk at this time in history. Then someone comes flying out of a tent having been punched by a black man. So Lucy says tell that to him. And Wyatt is positively awestruck when he recognises Wendell Scott. A group of men follow Scott back into his tent, wanting to know why Scott just punched one of them. Scott says he caught him mucking in his engine, so he laid him out. It looks like this is going to get more violent, but Wyatt intervenes, claiming to be a cop, and he manages to defuse the situation. Scott is thankful and they get chatting and he shows Wyatt a secret compartment in the boot of the car and offers him some moonshine in thanks. Which if Wyatt was really a cop that might have been unwise. But anyway, this secret compartment in the boot of Scott's car will be important to the plot later on. Wyatt says his father was a driver, not a racer. He wants to know more about Scott's car and tales of Scott outrunning the police, smuggling moonshine. Lucy has to drag the conversation back to Ryan Millison. She's hoping Scott can take them to Millison. Lucy and Rufus introduce themselves. Rufus shakes his hand and nods his head at him, in the way that black people do when they greet each other, he explains later. Scott is baffled and says, what was that? You shook your head at me and this becomes a kind of running gag between them. Scott does go off to find Millicent. Wyatt tells them more about Wendell Scott's career. He didn't get the recognition he should have for his achievements. Rufus describes him as being like a real-life Han Solo, which doesn't seem like the most apt comparison anyone could have thought of, but we know Rufus is a major Star Wars nerd, so it's definitely a compliment. Wyatt says he ran something a little more illegal than moonshine across the Texas border when he was 15. There have been other hints that Wyatt was a bit off the rails as a kid. But Lucy is really taken by surprise by this. I think maybe she has a slightly idealised view of who Wyatt is. Anyway, Scott tells them that Millicent is currently talking to reporters, but they can see him afterwards. So they go into Millicent's tent to talk to him. They tell him they think he could be in danger. They ask if he's seen a woman with red hair, freckles and an evil stare. He says no. 
Rufus is looking around his car and thinks he sees a trigger mechanism. Wyatt opens up the bonnet and he sees a bomb under the hood. They assume someone has rigged the car while Millicent was talking to reporters. But when they turn around, Millicent is pointing a gun at them and they realise he is the Rittenhouse sleeper agent. And then who should walk into the tent but Emma and Goon Mark? They have guns pointed at Wyatt, Lucy and Rufus and they take Wyatt's gun from him. Millicent asks Emma what Wyatt and the others are doing there. She says dying. Although she tells Rufus she'll let him live if he tells her where the lifeboat is. He doesn't. The other Rittenhouse guy, Goon Mark, he questions whether she really wants him to kill Carol's daughter. Emma says she's ordering him to. But before it can happen, a smoke grenade is thrown into the tent by Scott. He tells Rufus later it was actually a fire extinguisher grenade. In the confusion, Wyatt, Lucy and Rufus make a run for it out the back and Wendell Scott drives them away. Scott wants to know why those people were trying to hurt Millicent. Wyatt says Millicent is one of them. Scott says he's known Millicent for six years and he's a good man. But Lucy invents a story that Millicent is a communist spy. Scott's car is behaving oddly. He thinks the engine must have been tampered with after all, but they manage to reach his garage. While Scott is off working on repairs, Rufus is asking Wyatt about Millicent. Wyatt says Millicent came out of nowhere in 1946. Rufus says, what if Rittenhouse placed him here in 1946 so that he could work his way up as a racing driver? up to this year, 1955. Although Wyatt believes him to be a normal part of history, what if all his memories of Millicent are new because history was changed? Now then, I could talk a lot about the rewriting of history in Timeless, I'm sure I will in the weeks ahead, but for now it's important to note that Wyatt is affected by this change to history. He recalls the new history with Millicent in it, not the original history. But there are other cases where the opposite seems to happen. I'll come back to this topic in a future podcast. Wyatt is looking at a flyer for the Darlington 500 race and he realises what Rittenhouse are doing here. All the big car company executives and important engineers are going to be at the race. If Rittenhouse takes them all out with a bomb, the car companies will be vulnerable to takeover. The car industry was the major industry at the time, so if Rittenhouse has control of it, then they have huge influence, which gives them power to steer American history, which is what they're after. Wyatt tells Wendell Scott they need to get back into the racetrack. We cut to Mason and Agent Christopher. He wants to leave the bunker to speak at a tech symposium. He says he took the blame for the explosion at Mason Industries. He forfeited his fortune. At some point this will all be over and he needs to start rebuilding his reputation. She says his fortune came from Rittenhouse. He's had more fame and fortune than most people can dream of and a few months living like everyone else won't kill him. She tells him to cancel his appearance. Back with Millicent and Emma, 
She asks why someone on a suicide mission would decide to fall in love and have a baby. She questions his commitment to the cause. He says he doesn't care about his wife and the kid was an accident. The bomb is ready in the car. Millicent insists he is ready to do what's being asked of him. So now we know that Rittenhouse is the kind of organisation that expects people to go on suicide missions. Scott refuses to take Wyatt and Co. back to the racetrack, having just got them out of there. Wyatt tells him there's a bomb in Millicent's car, but Scott doesn't believe him. Millicent is popular and Scott doesn't need to give the race officials any new reasons to keep him out of the races. Rufus says he'll help Scott fix his car if he helps them, but he only succeeds in releasing a burst of steam that scolds his arm. It blisters immediately, in exactly the way Gia saw in her vision. So it's pretty clear now that Gia's visions are showing her altered timelines before they happen. And I wonder, does that mean we're going to go back to the construction of the Golden Gate Bridge at some point? Hmm. We'll have to wait and see. Wyatt fixes a clogged fuel filter for Scott. He really does know these cars. They compare stories about their fathers. Wyatt's was clearly not what you'd call a model father, and Scott's was a gambler who walked out on his family. Wyatt reveals that he left home when he was 15 and he took his father's car when he left. He ran it till the pistons blew and then drove it straight into a lake. As he finishes this story he turns around and realises that Lucy and Rufus have heard what he said. Now Scott does agree to take them back to the racetrack in return for Wyatt fixing his car. But getting the three of them back in isn't going to be easy. He says Rufus can ride up front with him. Wyatt and Lucy have to go in the boot of the car. As they're driving back, Scott tells Rufus that he plans to win NASCAR races. Rufus says he's got his work cut out for him. Scott smiles and says what's too tough for everyone else is just right for us. Lucy is on edge because she's claustrophobic, of course, and Wyatt knows it. He tells her to hold on to him, which she does, gladly. They talk about Wyatt's father some more. Wyatt says he thought every bad thing he did was his fault. But after running the car into the lake, he just let go of it. Lucy says she revered her mother, but now realises she's terrible. Wyatt says maybe it's a good thing that Lucy knows the truth. The car is searched on entry. Scott is forced to open the trunk. But they don't see Wyatt and Lucy because they're in the secret part where the moonshine is often stored. Wyatt and Lucy laugh about not being discovered. And their embrace is just on the edge of turning into a kiss when Scott opens the trunk to let them out. So, interrupted for the second episode in a row. But their relationship is obviously on the brink of developing into something more. Ryan Millison is preparing for his suicide drive with the car rigged as a bomb. Unexpectedly, his wife is brought in to him by Emma. Emma says she'll be sitting right beside his wife in the stands. If he doesn't carry out the mission, Emma will kill her. So Emma and Millison's wife go back to their seats. 
but Goon Mark stays with Millison. He's being interviewed by the press beside his car when Wyatt comes into the tent. Wyatt doesn't have his gun anymore because Goon Mark took it from him, so he has to fight without it. Wyatt wins the fight, breaking the guy's neck to end it. So now he has a gun again. Millicent desperately tries to start the car to carry out his mission. Wyatt shoots and kills him, but not before he arms the bomb. Rufus is going to try to disarm it, but then Millicent's wife comes back into the tent and sees her husband has been killed. She's followed by Emma. So Wyatt has to drive the car away with the bomb still armed. Rufus says the bomb is pressure sensitive and they're going really fast. In addition to which they're being chased by police cars. So it's a tense drive. One of the police cars almost bumps the rear of the car but Wyatt pulls away. With some fancy driving he manages to put some distance between them and reverse park in Scott's garage without the police seeing and somehow avoiding setting the bomb off too. So, safely concealed in the garage, Rufus disarms the bomb. The time team prepare to go home in the lifeboat. Scott demonstrates the nod to Rufus. Rufus says it's sure to catch on and he'll be a trendsetter. Scott says he's sure to win a race by then. Wyatt, Rufus and Lucy look unsure and Scott picks up on it. He says, don't they think he can do it? They say it's not that, it's just, does he think they'll ever give a prize to a black man? He says of course not, he just wants to race and be the best. Wyatt shakes his hand. They jump home. Soon after that, Gia sees the burn on Rufus's arm. She's starting to realise what's happening to her. But she doesn't tell him what she's seen, and he doesn't realise how troubled she is by it. He tells her the burn is nothing. Mason has gone to the symposium, the one he was told not to go to. Agent Christopher arrives with quite a few other agents and puts him under arrest in front of other speakers at the symposium, but before the audience has come in. Back at the bunker, she tells him if he was embarrassed, he did it to himself, and if he ever puts the security of the team at risk again, he will walk into prison and he will never walk out. In the last scene for this episode, Emma and Carol are talking. Carol is complaining that Emma failed her mission. Emma says yes because your daughter interfered. Carol should have let Emma kill her in 1918, which is a slightly warped interpretation of what happened there. Nicholas Keynes would have been killed if Emma had shot Lucy. Emma then starts to criticise Keynes and Carol is infuriated by that. A security guard of some kind says they need to come and see something. In a bay where the mothership is standing, there is an enormous wall mural that Keynes has painted. It's a moody piece of art. I could hazard a guess at a couple of things within the overall image, but it's a struggle to do so, in all honesty. But I expect there will be some further explanation at some point. Carol says it's a map. Keane says don't call it that, a map is for explorers. That isn't who they are, they're artists. Time is their canvas and the mothership is their brush. Keynes gives a speech about reshaping and saving the world. 
Emma's reaction is wow. But Carol looks very worried. And that's the end of the episode. This is a fun episode. It boasts a really endearing portrayal of Wendell Scott. I think Joseph Lee Anderson is terrific in the part. We get more background on Wyatt. Also Wyatt and Lucy clearly getting closer now. The mystery around Gia is deepening. Rufus is not being particularly observant about what's going on. Obviously he knows about the seizures, but there's more to it. There's lots of friction between Agent Christopher and Connor Mason, and between Christopher and Wyatt too in the previous episode. She's definitely being tough with them all, perhaps because I think they're all quite undisciplined in her eyes. On the Rittenhouse side of things, Keynes is starting to assert himself in that last scene. Emma likes it, but Carol, maybe she has doubts suddenly. Although she definitely sees his writings as being central to everything. Flynn's suggestion that Carol groomed Lucy for Rittenhouse her whole life seems unduly harsh given that Lucy has resisted Rittenhouse from the moment she learned of it. I do wonder if the Carol from the original timeline, the one that was sick, had the same values as the Carol that we're stuck with now. I like what Robert Duncan does with the soundtrack on this episode. He definitely went for something a bit different, using a lot of songs in the soundtrack for the key moments. It works great. That's all for this episode. Next time I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 3, Hollywood Land. All the podcasts so far are available on the site, timelessfiles.podbean.com or in all the usual podcasting places, including iTunes, Stitcher and TuneIn. And you can find me on Twitter at, at @timelessfiles. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. <laughs>